So, uh, as I said, uh, my wife and I are relatively new here at CBC, but after three years uh, among all of you, we've heard a lot of stories about what's happened in the church's past. And if any of you are newer here than we are, uh, you might go around and you, you might ask, what are some of the most memorable moments in the life of the church, if that's the sort of question you ask at coffee, I don't know. Um, and uh, you might hear about our, our embrace of missional communities um, recently. You might hear about our strategic planning in 2011, just as Marilyn and I were actually coming to the church, which resulted in the expansion of the foyer outside. Um, some people might even go further back and tell you about uh, when the church decided to break with, or at least uh, sort of informally break, with the uh, Plymouth Brethren denomination and kind of become a more uh, interdenominational church and hired a, a full-time paid senior minister to dedicated to the full-time pastoral care of the church. Um, some people might tell you in the core fields of the story how in uh, the year 2000 when uh, the world was sort of uh, anxious about what would happen when the computers all went from a, essentially a two-digit uh, date to a four-digit date, how the entire electrical grid would shut down and apparently there was a prayer meeting at the, the church. Now it's you know, 15 years ago now, so these kids are roughly a little older than I am. But um, that apparently they went and shut down the generator that the church had bought and everyone freaked out for a few seconds until they <laughs> figured out what the prank was. Um, so, uh, right, uh, some of you might, some even might talk about how this building was, uh, used to be a restaurant, apparently, which explains the deer head over in the um, overflow area. Uh, yeah, oh, an elk, actually, an elk. So, um, and uh, how this actually, this building, I guess, was lifted up on, on a truck and moved over to this current location before it became a church. Um, each of these stories would differ somewhat in the telling. I just said it was a deer. Uh, we just heard that it was actually an elk. Um, we, uh, but, uh, and we might change the arrangement of the stories. We humans are, are storytellers who like to weave together events to suit the purposes that we have in telling a story. And so we pick the details and we arrange them according to uh, what we want our listeners to take away. Um, so the stories that, are, that each person would tell you about the history of this church might differ, not because they're not all true in a basic sense, but because different details matter more to different storytellers, and each storyteller has a different purpose at a particular time in telling the story. So in the New Testament, uh, as I think many of you know, there are four stories of the life of Christ in the, the, first, the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels. And they all are arranged in different ways and tell slightly different stories. John actually tells dramatically different stories. Um, but they all also have very different purposes. The book of Mark, which most scholars believe was the earliest gospel that was actually written down, was probably an attempt to record all the teachings of Peter, the apostle, um, soon after he was executed. Um, it was probably put together for a church in Italy, mostly consisting of non-Jews who wouldn't understand the sort of background in Jewish culture that's really part of the story of Jesus. Um, and that, that book, the book of Mark, jump, is, is very short. It's one of the shortest, it is the shortest gospel, and it jumps quickly from event to event. One of the most common phrases in the Greek uh, uh, version of the book, or the Greek original of the book, is and immediately, or Caiaphas. And so you constantly get Jesus and immediately going to do something, which gets kind of funny at some points. Like uh, right after he's baptized, immediately the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Um, I always feel like you're kind of on a uh, moving sidewalk running through the airport when you're reading the, the uh, book of Mark. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, was probably written much, much later and has the particular purpose of showing a particular Christian community that was very much associated with John that Jesus was the Messiah through using um, the miracles uh, as proofs. So John even starts to count off the miracles as you're going through that Gospel. He says, when he's talking about the water changing into wine, he says this was the first miracle, and then he counts off the next three. Um, and then at the end of the book, he says, Jesus performed many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book 
that these ones in this book are written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But today we're reading the book of Luke. And Luke announces his purpose in writing his book at the beginning of the gospel. So at the very beginning of Luke, he says, uh, writing to a, maybe a person uh, named Theophilus, maybe this sort of general, the word Theophilus in Greek means God lover, so maybe it's just generally the community of people that, that love God. Um, many have taken up to, undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us, the stories of, of Jesus, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke is sort of like Marilyn and I. He's kind of coming late to the story of, of the, of the, that he's telling. Um, with this in mind, since I myself, that is Luke, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In Paul's letters and in the book of uh, Acts, which Luke also at least wrote part of, we learn that uh, Luke was a doctor. And like any good methodical, carefully, uh, careful scientifically minded physician, he wants to preserve the, rule, uh, the stories of Jesus' life in an orderly way. And unlike John, who bases his proof on Jesus's, of Jesus' claims to messiahship on the stories of the miracles, so John's proof of Jesus' claims are by the miracles that he did, uh, Luke thinks that the best way to prove the Christian faith for his audience is to show its historicity. And so you get from the very beginning uh, Luke trying to place the stories of Jesus at particular times in, in Roman history. So he talks about in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Uh, this is the first census that took place, or the second census, I forget, during the reign of uh, when Canarius was governor of Syria. Um, and he tries to lay it out very in a carefully researched, constructed biography uh, so that the audience begins to, to trust what he's saying. Now, I studied, I, I did my graduate work as a literary critic, and I've been taught to try to understand the kind of literature that I'm reading, um, so the genre that I'm reading before I try to interpret it. So trying to read a poem like a weather report might be an interesting experiment in criticism, but it's probably not all that useful for trying to figure out what coat I should wear the next day. Um, but John's gospel, and John's gospel is actually kind of more like a poem. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, but Luke's is almost more like a Wikipedia entry. Um, the books of the story are carefully chosen and put together so that the story um, and the order in which they're chosen matters. So when I was assigned for this, pa this uh, passage, the, when I was assigned to this passage for today, I realized maybe for the first time how weird this section of Luke's gospel is. As we heard today, uh, we get the story of Jesus' baptism, which we're all fairly familiar with, um, and it's one of the very few uh, events that's told in all four gospels. But then it's immediately followed by Jesus' family tree. Now, Matthew also includes a family tree in his gospel. Um, it's totally different, or, or almost entirely different, um, and scholars have talked about why that is at the beginning of chapter one. Um, and, and Matthew's placement of that family tree uh, seems more natural. He begins his book with the begats, if you read it in the, in the King James Version. Um, but Luke, who's writing an orderly account, gets really far along in his story. He tells the story of John the Baptist's birth, and then Jesus' birth, and then Jesus' baptism. And then he breaks away from that narrative to, uh, to tell the, the family tree of, of Jesus. And why, what about the baptism prompts this break in the narrative? Well, if you consider the baptism and the genealogy together, it starts to make some sense. After Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven declares that, he, that Jesus is God's beloved son. 
In the recent secular bestseller uh, about the life of Christ, Zealot, Reza Aslan explains that the Son of God had a lot of possible meanings in the culture in which Jesus was born, including just the idea that someone is a righteous person, so that the sons of God are kind of, the, there were different communities that claimed to be the sons of God. But here, and in the Gospels, the voice from heaven seems especially paternal. It says, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So it seems like it's going more than just like you're generally a good kind of son of God, but you're, he's actually saying, you're my beloved son. But, and remember that Luke has also just spent the last two chapters explaining how Jesus is literally God's son through one of the longest versions of the, uh, in the Gospels of the virgin birth. By this point, the reader of Luke's Gospel might start thinking that Jesus is kind of an alien being or something. He's um, almost like a, a, a very kind of spiritual life form that's implanted in a human uterus and takes on human form, but is an entirely different kind of person than you or I. Uh, but right after Jesus is baptized and declared to actually be God's son, Luke, stop. Luke stops and says, by the way, Jesus was human too and had a whole human line of ancestors. So I mentioned earlier on that Matthew's gospel differs entirely, his genealogy differs almost entirely from Luke's gospel in the genealogy. And since at least about the 700s after the birth of Christ, 700 years after the birth of Christ, scholars have uh, believed, or some scholars have argued, that Luke's genealogy actually goes back from Mary which explains why it differs so significantly. So according to this interpretation, whenever Luke uh, says that um, Jesus was, th was th thought the son of Joseph, but he was also, and then Luke kind of moves up one line in the genealogy that he's telling, but he was also the son of or a descendant of um, Eli, and then that person was a descendant of Matthias. So there's that kind of bracket that says Joseph was the nearest male ancestor because in this time period, putting a woman in the genealogy was not something that was done. But then it goes back to the, the Mary's line to follow that up. Um, and what's interesting about Luke's genealogy, though, is unlike Matthew's list, which only goes back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam and actually to God himself and says that Adam was the son of God. So it really doesn't matter whether Luke's genealogy, for my purposes anyway, is, is Mary's genealogy or Joseph's genealogy. Eventually, they both would intersect in Adam. And further, by this logic, we're all sons and daughters of God, and that we all have that lineage, genealogy that goes back to Adam, which goes back to God. But Jesus is doubly so, since God intervened in the species and created another direct descendant. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, Adam was a pattern or a type that Jesus fulfilled. And some theologians therefore call Jesus the second Adam. So he's the second kind of direct descendant of God. Maybe Luke wants to remind his audience at this time that we must always keep in mind that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine, the Son of God and the Son of Mary. Christianity is full of these seemingly contradictory binaries that tradition and scripture ask us to keep in mind at once. We've got faith and works, predestination and free will, the three and one nature of the Trinity. And I can't, believe I, I can't uh, pretend to say that I completely understand how we are supposed to keep these things in mind at once. C.S. Lewis, the uh, author that many of you know, um, has helped me a little bit in this. In his essay, Transposition, he writes that many holy activities, like he, he actually begins by talking about speaking in tongues, but then goes on to talk about communion, are difficult to understand because they represent the transposition of a richer heavenly medium to our er, poorer earthly one. So his example is an orchestral score, which if you know, there's the violins and the um, the violas and all that, that uh, in a piano version, a piano reduction of that orchestral score, the one instrument has to play all the parts for all the different instruments. 
And so you've got that richer medium of the orchestra that has to get mapped into the poorer medium of a piano score. Um, I encounter a more modern example of this every time I follow my GPS over the George Washington Bridge. Um, if you have ever driven across the bridge, uh, you'll know that there's several different levels to the bridge, and each level it matters where you can get from which level you're on. Uh, but my GPS doesn't know anything about altitude, or at least it doesn't tell me anything about altitude. It only knows about latitude and longitude. So uh, I could be in exactly the wrong place in a, the sort of Z dimension, if you like uh, uh, geometry, um, but because it only knows about the X and Y coordinates. So the multiple levels of the bridge allow for a third dimension, and therefore it's possible in the GPS's mind for it to be both wrong and right about my location at the same time because its understanding of the world is limited by two-dimensionality. In our world, it's impossible that someone could be both finite and infinite at once, that Jesus could be both fully created and a creator at the same time. But maybe this seeming contradiction is the problem of the richer medium of heaven transposing into the poorer one of earth. But why does this genealogy come right after the baptism? That why does Luke do his begats or his son ofs right after the baptism. After all, the voice from heaven also appears right after the transfiguration in Luke 9. And it might have made more sense to put it there because at that point, uh, if, if, he's, if he's interested in humanizing Christ, you've got uh, uh, Elijah and Moses appearing as kind of shiny beings next to him in a kind of Star Trek scene almost. And uh, so, so if you want to humanize Christ, that's kind of the moment that you might want to do it. Or, you know, you could put it right after the virgin birth to say, oh yeah, yeah we, you know, it's really, cool that, that Jesus was literally God's son, but he's also Mary's son, remember. Um, what is it about the baptism that Luke thought in his orderly telling of Christ that that's the place to put Jesus' genealogy? Uh, I don't know, of course, what Luke was thinking, but I wonder if it had something to do with the nature of baptism. Baptism has historically been thought of as representing a kind of death and a new birth of a new self. Jesus tells Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, somewhat cryptically, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and of the spirit. And earlier in that Gospel, John the Baptist says, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the one on whom you see the spirit come down and remain will be the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So baptism seems to be part of the rebirth into the life of Christ. Maybe baptism is, like one, of the, is one of those places like the George Washington Bridge where another dimension suddenly comes into play. On one level, on the X and Y coordinates, it's water. I mean, it's, it's just truly water. There's nothing special about it. But on another level that we can't see in this transposition, something truly significant is happening. Peter, in his uh, epistle, says that the waters of Noah's flood foreshadowed the baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And in Galatians, Paul said, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, maybe taking on, in a way, the second Adam status that we see that Jesus has. In fact, Jesus's baptism seems somehow to change the receptivity to the Holy Spirit. In one of the most well-known passages in evangelical churches, when the crowd at uh, Pentecost asks Peter what they should do in response to the proclamation of the gospel, Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19, which most people think is also written by Luke, um, there, or many scholars think is also written by Luke, there's a story that tightly connects uh, baptism and the Holy Spirit. So in Luke 19, Luke's, uh, in uh, Acts 19, we read, uh, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? 
And they answered, no, we've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then, what baptism did you receive? And John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the uh, Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Although here we see that John's baptism was somewhat different than Christian baptism in Jesus uh, that imparts the Holy Spirit, even John's baptism seems to have had an effect on the spiritual status of the recipients. A few chapters after today's passage, and we might uh, hear about this later uh, and as we read through Luke, when John is in prison, uh, Jesus praises John, and Luke tells us that all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, that is about John, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. It's not entirely clear here whether the understanding is a result of John's baptism or just shares a common cause. Uh, that is, that those who would be baptized would also be the people that would be receptive to Jesus' words. But it does suggest that we are to imitate the kind of people who submit to baptism. And of course, baptism is a hugely controversial is issue throughout Christian history. Disagreements about what it represents, when it should happen, how it should be performed, has split denominations, and in earlier centuries have actually led to Christians killing each other. Although I suspect that one's position on these matters matters less than some of our earlier brothers and sisters might have believed, the passion that they had suggests that baptism has regularly in Christian history been considered an incredibly important part of the Christian life. And yet it's also been threatening and potentially humiliating. It seems ridiculous to us, at least, and probably to Christians throughout history, and, and perhaps um, even somewhat superstitious, that ritual washing should matter all that much at all. It's always safer, for me it's anyway safer anyway, to, to sort of sit back in my own heart and my mind and sort of agree with what's being said intellectually and think, well, maybe I should do whatever the, the preacher is telling me someday. But baptism is so kind of immediate and physical and possible that it uh, forces us to consider whether we're willing to obey or not in a very physical and very public ritual. So why would God want us to dip ourselves in water? Um, baptism, by the way, the, the going back to the very early etymology of the word, uh, was a sort of, we, we just kind of take the pronunciation of the Greek word and move it into English. The Greek word is a baptizo, um, which was kind of to stick something in water. Um, and it probably had this sort of uh, automatopoeic, so it's, it was a word that sounded like what it was, so like the, the sound of was kind of the sound of something dipping in water. Um, so why would God want us to, uh, to do that? Uh, other Christian rituals like uh, eating bread or drinking grape juice uh, to commemorate, or wine to commemorate his death is strange enough, but that can at least be handled relatively quickly and, well, communally. Um, baptism, at least, uh, it seems like, like a lot of bother for for confirming something that we could just believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. Of course, we don't often make the same objections about weddings. Uh, marriages could be presumably made holy by a simple exchange of vows on a subway car, um, but we do tend to make a bigger deal about those. And scripture is full of places where someone is commanded to do something kind of ritualistic and seemingly ridiculous, but is rewarded or punished for their willingness or lack of a willingness to obey. In 2 Kings 5, for instance, uh, the commander of um, one of the armies, Naaman, uh, contracts leprosy. And he asked the prophet Elisha to heal him. And starting in verse 10 of 2 Kings 5, we read, Elisha, who's one of the big prophets of the Old Testament, sent a messenger to him to say, go and wash yourselves, Naaman, uh, seven times in the river Jordan, which is one of Israel's rivers, uh, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. 
But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of, me, cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfor, the rivers of Damascus, much better waters than all of this in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. But Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man told him, his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. But like Naaman, baptism can be humiliating. And I know it was uh, for me, I, I grew up in a Christian family in a church that very strongly believed in baptism. Um, but for some reason, uh, and all of my friends were probably baptized when they were uh, between 10 and 12 or so. And it was something that I wanted to do at that point, but it was really hard for me to do it. And I think part of it was just kind of my own uh, kind of interior. I didn't want to have to tell it, particularly in my family, that this was this very personal thing, this very personal confession was something that I wanted to do. Uh, that it was, I, mean, I was a teenage boy. I didn't want to get all emotional and say, oh, I want to do this, this thing. Um, but eventually, I just felt so strongly that I had to do it, that I had to be willing to, to sort of accept that what was for me a very kind of humiliating thing and tell my parents I, I want to be baptized. Um, because it seemed to be commanded. And if we don't submit to it, we may fool ourselves if we think we will obey the other outward acts that God calls us to do, like care for the poor or, or living justly, that John actually commands his followers to do uh, after they're baptized in the passage we just read or possibly just before. Um, Baptism is one of the first actions we must uh, take if we seek not to be mere hearers of the word, as James says, but doers as well. And it's not something we should be slow about. In the New Testament, those who heard the apostles' teachings were often baptized immediately. The book of Acts records that 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. And later, when Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch on the way to Gaza, the, he was a servant and the, the queen of uh, Ethiopia at the time, um, Philip uh, tells him the gospel and the eunuch says, oh look, here's water, Why, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? And in Acts 16, when an earthquake frees Paul and Silas from prison, they convince their jailer not to commit suicide because now the prisoners are free and he's gonna get in trouble. And the jailer uh, believes what they're saying and says what, asks what he must do to be baptized. And after hearing the gospel, we read, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds because they'd been be beaten. And then he immediately and all his family were baptized. It does seem, though, that belief and repentance usually do precede baptism, and for that reason, some churches, including CBC, have a short series of counseling sessions to confirm that the baptized understand the action that they're about to perform. There's an early Christian book, uh, actually really early, like 100 AD or so, um, called the Didache, or the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles, um, that gives these instructions about baptism. And concerning baptism, it says, baptize in this way. Having first said all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit in living or flowing water. But if you have no living or flowing water, baptize in other water, that's still water. And if you, can't do so, uh, if you can't do it in cold, that is, we should assume that it's cold, you can't do it in cold, do so in warm. But if you have neither, pour out the water, uh, whatever you've got, uh, get some water, and instead of immersing, pour it three times on the person's head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whoever else can uh, fast. But you should order the baptized fast for three, two or three days, one or two days before. Now, CB, uh, CBC doesn't make anyone fast for baptism, though I suppose you can if you wish. Um, but this church does encourage a period of, ref of reflection and discussion. 
And I urge those who haven't yet been baptized to speak with one of the elders or with Decker and Swain, neither of whom are here right now, but the elders are, and you can talk to me if you're interested, um, as soon as possible if this is something that you'd like to consider. Um, for the rest of us, and I assume many of us here have already been baptized, I think this passage can remind us of the simultaneously active and contemplative nature of our faith. Although what we believe is important, how we incarnate that belief, how we make it physical, demonstrates its quality. Those of us who have been baptized are born again, and like Jesus, become a kind of second Adam, born of both physical water and the spirit, with a genealogy that has both a spiritual and a physical branch. Because we are simultaneously flesh and spirit, we must act physically as well as believe spiritually. And too often in my own life, I know that the spiritual becomes really romantic. I think uh, maybe I should one day go to southern Sudan and dig wells, or I'll become a, quit my job and become a Bible translator, and maybe one day I'll be called to do these things. But I think more often we're called to what in software development and maybe a lot of other industries we talk about is the adjacent possible, the thing that's just right next to you that you can do right now. Um, most often I think I'm called to obey in small, trivial ways, to submit to the little meaningless humiliations that are a result of living honestly and loving generously. So what's the next step in your faithful walk? It might be something that seems silly, humiliating, or too inconsequential, or maybe even a little superstitious. And it's probably a good idea to check really strange callings against scripture and faithful advisors because sometimes feelings of compulsion really are uh, superstitious. But if it's something like baptism or giving to the poor or acting justly, then it's something that we're clearly called to do, then I think we would do well to listen to Naaman's servant. He said, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed?